This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Adam Cano, and joining me today are fellow members of the National Press Club, Alan Kotak, Diane Stam, and Ron Hoffer. Dan joins us from Paris. Alan and Ron are here in the U.S. All are involved in the club's 21st annual member photo exhibit that is on display this year. Thank you all so much for joining me this morning. Pleasure. Diane, I understand in particular uh, you have gone to some extraordinary lengths to try to make this podcast clean from an audio perspective. Do you want to share very quickly what you were telling me before we went on the air? Well, there's a collapsing building near my building, and uh, they've been uh, uh, reinforcing it for months, and it's been creating a huge amount of noise. So I used Google Translate, and I brought a written note over to them, and I asked them if they could please see, stop the noise between, uh, you know, for a period of like 20 minutes. And they said, well, we're going to be done in 15, so it's pretty quiet out there now. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate the cooperation of the, of the French Construction Union or whoever, Indeed. Uh, whoever we have to thank. So, Alan, let me start with you. Before we get to kind of the unique aspects of this year's exhibit, can you just remind our listeners about the history uh, of the annual photo exhibit within the context of the National Press Club? Yes. This is the 21st annual exhibit. 1999 is when it started. Up through 2016, exhibit was all print photographs. And the participants... The members of the press club would come in with their uh, photographs and we'd post them on fabric panels in the lobby of the press club. I personally started posting print photos in 2012 and um, in 2016, then chair of the uh, photo committee, L. Tyke, asked me to take over organizing the exhibit and I said I'd be and we again had had our print photographs on display. Well, each year, beginning in 2012, there were 25, 26 members taking part, and it would be the same number each year. I looked into it, and it turns out it was pretty much the same people taking part every year, and they got progressively one year older. And I said to myself, the uh, long-term demographics of this are not favorable. We really need to expand participation. So in 2017, we added the electronic exhibit, and we expanded participation. We got on 43, 44 members taking part. First year that we had the electronic exhibit, Don North, the legendary ABC TV correspondent, came in with photos from the Battle of Way during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And I had not seen these photos before, and I asked Don, have you exhibited these photos anywhere? He said, no, no, this is the first chance that I've had to show these things off. And I'm thinking to myself, we are sitting on a gold mine here of stories that our members can tell through photographs. 
we're beyond pretty pictures at this point here. So we've kind of shifted the focus from being just a photography exhibit. You look at the um, publicity the last couple of years, we talk about a celebration of visual storytelling. And then beginning last year in 2019, we added the catalog. So those stories, you can actually tell those stories, capture those stories. And then this year, uh, of course, all we have is the catalog that integrates the photographs with the descriptions and the stories and links to further information. So I know the exhibit is hosted by you, and we're going to put the, the website up on where the podcast is hosted, but it's https slash slash technewslit.com slash npc slash photo x. EX 2020. Um, that's http slash mpc slash photo EX 2020. Diane, I want to kind of move to you. As we talked about at the beginning, you're based in France. I know you've done work for Bonjour Paris. Do you contribute photography as well as writing? And, and what's it like to be an American journalist in Paris right now? Well, you know, there was the lockdown, so things were very quiet. This website is owned by someone, a magazine company, and there weren't a lot of events to cover because it, it's really for tourists. Things are picking up, and I've got some things on my schedule to start attending and reviewing again, so that's going to be, be picking up. I do take many of the photographs, but, for example, I did a piece on the 40th anniversary of Apocalypse Now, and that was all stock stuff taken by the editor. But when I go somewhere and I actually can see with my own eyes and my own camera something, you know, if it's a fashion, you know, exhibition or uh, an art exhibition, then I, I do take the photographs. You've shot some really sort of interesting and compelling faces, uh, both for last year and, and this year. How do you gain the trust of those subjects in these photos? I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the, the two Middle Eastern subjects that are in this year's exhibit. A lot of people ask that. And um, I am told by this woman who was a photography teacher of mine that I had this knack of getting people to sort of trust me quickly. And my own view is you have to make an immediate connection. You know within the first second if they're going to allow you in. And I approach people with the highest degree of respect that I can. I don't uh, impose myself. I almost meekly say hello. I I make eye contact. I smile at them. I want them to know I am friend and not foe. And with respect to those two photographs, one is of a beggar, an elderly woman who is a beggar at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. We had an immediate connection. Her eyes, I don't know, you, you saw the picture. She's very warm. You know, and in some cultures, I don't know if people know this, in some cultures, begging is looked at as a job. And she may very well be helping her family out. That's her job. And I asked her if I could take a picture. And of course, I was going to pay her. That's her job. But she gave me the most wonderful face. You know, I, I just was so grateful to her. And the other photograph was a young vendor at Petra, which is the uh, very ancient city in Jordan. 
And it was a very hot day. I had stopped there on my dragging my way out walking and I stopped to get a drink from him. And I asked him if I could sit down and we started to chat and I asked him if I could take a picture and he really didn't want me to because there's very high unemployment rate of young people in Jordan. And he could have been doing anything. If he were in a country with more opportunity, he would be a lawyer or a computer analyst or whatever he would be. But here he is selling things to tourists. And he was a little bit angry, you know, just at his situation. And when I asked him if I could take a picture, he did relent and he let me take the picture. And if you look at it very closely, you can see there's ever so slightly defiance in it. You know, and uh, and that's fine. You know, I mean, he had dreams and it's in a country with a very high unemployment rate for youth. Part of what makes those photos so compelling is that they are sort of extreme close ups. And, and are they shot that way? Do you crop them that way? Both? It will depends, you know, I mean, I like to get a bit of context, uh, but I, but I also feel that to shoot too closely is too intrusive into a human being's space. Mm. And so I get as close as I feel I can with them being comfortable and not feel like I'm confronting them. And then I do crop. Uh, and, um, you know, then you want to get the balance and the three, 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 whatever, you know? Uh, so, um, uh, it, it's a combination but I do prefer to get as close as I can, if I can, respectfully. The National Press Club's exhibit isn't the only one taking note uh, and featuring your work. I know the Washington Post has a uh, travel photo contest that contains a prize-winning shot that you took of a farrier at work. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I sometimes go to the Cotswolds in England, my favorite place, and I like to horseback ride. In, there's a stable in my village. And the day I, one day I was there and I, and this farrier was working. And just for those who don't know, a farrier is a person who takes care of the uh, hooves of horses. And they're sort of partially a blacksmith and partially a veterinarian. And they're very skilled. And this young man was working there that day. And, you know, I just watched him and I was so fascinated by the balletic way in which he handled his, his hands and his arms and the horse's leg and everything. And so I realized that when he put the hot shoe on the manicured hoof, it was, it was going to be some smoke. And I caught it just when the smoke was billowing. And I, I just, I really like that photograph. And I just have to say, when Alan called for photographs for the press club, I actually had submitted that as one of my four photographs. But when the Washington Post told me that I was a finalist, I had to email him and ask him if he could please let me have it back, which he very kindly did. And he accepted another photograph in its stead. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Well, well, we will try not to get too territorial with our peers over at the, uh, at the Post. Ron, I want to turn to you. Your four photographs on exhibit are actually a subset of about 85, I think, that's included in a new photo memoir from the Bronx to Berlin and beyond. What brought you to Russia and Eastern Europe in the 1990s? I joined uh, US EPA as a geologist, actually, uh, back in 1984. And I was a specialist in groundwater. And that science was really groundwater protection, which was a new program in the United States, was practiced mostly in Europe, in Germany and the Netherlands. And the science was 
often from Eastern Europe. So I found myself going there as a visiting scientist, going to conferences. And I was actually in Berlin right after the wall fell. In December of 1989, I was in Berlin on a speaking tour and then over to Hanover. And so when the U.S. assistance began around that same time, uh, there weren't too many Americans who had worked over there. And USAID had been used to working in Africa in sort of rural settings. And this sort of urban craziness that you found in Eastern Europe was kind of unique to them. So EPA, uh, through the leadership of the administrator Bill Riley then, sort of began to volunteer. And I found myself working in uh, Eastern Europe. And it started a 30-year international career, much of it in the former Soviet Union, but then later in the World Bank up till this, this year in Africa and other places. So it was a crazy start. And in the book, I talk about the, my origins from, uh, you know, uh, a Bronx boy, you know, with Yiddish, Yiddish in the, around me to, to the current situation. Early 1990s, I mean, the, well, the former Soviet Union and, and uh, Eastern Europe were still a, a, a place of great transition uh, at that point. Did you encounter resistance from the, the subjects you were being photographed, given that they had, you know, effectively just come out of uh, decades of a much more closed society? Oh, actually, it's funny, almost no resistance, but it's, it was a little bit unusual because most of the people who I took pictures of knew me first as a professional. And, you know, they always saw me with a camera over my shoulder. And so I think they trusted me as a professional first. And uh, I was always taking photographs, not a lot, but they knew that they were important to sort of uh, show what things were like back home, which would keep the support up there. So um, that was critical. And also I didn't have, you know, a big kit. I had just one camera and an icon or a pocket camera called made by contacts. So it was a modest kit. I didn't take a lot of photographs. And uh, I think they can sense that I was really insanely curious and really cared for what was going on. And I think like uh, Diane mentioned, there was a certain warmth that at least I, I, I felt with them and a certain connection. So that, uh, that really helped. Um, that helped a lot. Yeah. One of your photos is of an afternoon tea in Leningrad. And I, did you get any sense from the people there about the, the kind of dichotomy of the privilege of that versus what so many of their fellow citizens faced at that time? Uh, that was one of the formative trips for me before I sort of decided to do international. Um, it was as a full-time, it was in 1990. So setting the context, Gorbachev was in power. It was the time of Glasnost and Perestroika. And no one over there in Russia knew what was going to happen. But the people in the, in the, um, in the room where I photographed was, it was a, a large villa. Uh, they were related to either the wives or relatives of the Communist Party's Central Committee. So they were used to privilege. So I say at the time, they probably thought it was you know, more like the usual where they had uh, certain privileges and the folks around them did not. But I could tell you that uh, there, was a, there was a lot of food there and a lot of drink, and none of it was left when we left. Uh, they, they took it all home with them. But it was definitely a, a period of instability and uncertainty. The photograph I took is of uh, the wife of the Central Party chairman, and she's wearing a very simple dress. And again, I would say that I asked her if I could take a photograph of her uh, because she exhibited a certain amount of strength. And she looked a little bit like my grandmother. You talked about uh, privilege and access for the for a select few to you know things from the West. Um, 
you have another photo in the exhibit. Uh, I believe the two subjects are named Vladimir and Elena, and they're holding a Sinatra and Basie uh, album, I believe. Um, did, did, you, did you see much at that time of sort of an American cultural presence in Russia? Well, it was generational. I mean, Vladimir uh, was a work colleague of mine who became a friend when I realized he was probably the most knowledgeable person about American jazz that I knew. And I was taken in Moscow in their apartment in 1996. Uh, it was just window light and um, you know, black and white photograph. And um, he was really proud of that, photo of that album. Everything that he had was focused on American jazz and the equipment and everything had a story. And he was one of those of his generation that were completely influenced positively by Voice America, Radio Free Europe. There was no question that his sort of, his love of democracy and American jazz and American culture was from that. On the other hand, in the 90s, among the youth, it was all about symbols of, of Western uh, you know, culture, pop culture. And so the most bizarre scene I've had is when I went to a very expensive hotel we were staying in, and uh, everyone in the lobby was drinking long neck Budweiser beers, you know, the kind you see in a, in a barbecue place in Texas. And they were paying $7 a, a pop for, you know, for this, uh, for this beer. But at the time, Chicago Bulls was big. And there was one uh, scene, there's a photograph in the book of two, uh, my, my, two, two colleagues, Boris and a friend. And one of the conversation with Boris's friends who didn't speak English was strictly about brand names. He'd say, Tommy Hilfinger, and we go, da, yet up and down. But it's all about trademarks. But it made, it made a difference. And it, one visit when I came back to Red Square and um, uh, there was a new, I think it was a Pizza Hut that opened up. I recognized that it was American junk food that sort of won the Cold War. In fairness to your comment about the $7 Budweiser, I believe Diane and I have probably each paid $7 for a Coke in Paris at some point uh, <laughs> over the years. Ron, last question to you, and then I want to come back to you, Diane. About the book, I mean, there's a strong narrative to it. What, what's the message, both in words and images, um, uh, to your readers about that time and that place for you? Well, you know, it is a personal memoir. So if you haven't been work in that region that time, it's a little hard to relate. But it clearly was a special time for not only the Americans and the Europeans who worked there, but our counterparts, um, uh, especially the younger ones who became kind of the, the democratic leaders and, and the progressives in their field from that point far forward. It was really a special time for them. For uh, my American policy wonks, I often say that despite whatever the brilliant ideas we had coming from, whether practitioners like myself or Harvard, it was really the, the, the gift of EU membership that, strove, that uh, drove so many of the countries to reform. I mean, being part of, of Europe was the most important thing for them to reform, whether it's environmental work or, or others. Um, and I, I think we, we came away with uh, recognition, like all of us travelers do, that you, you might be afraid a little bit initially, but you begin to respect other cultures and other, and other ways of doing things. And I have a number of stories in the book on that. And then lastly, I'd say is uh, put your fears aside and take a trip. And um, believe it or not, I mean, I actually would love to go back to, to Moscow. It's one of my favorite cities. And I'm not afraid that I will be whatever, something will happen to me. I'll be cyber attacked while I'm walking. I, I would look forward to even a crazy city like Moscow, walking the wonderful streets, avoiding the Bolshoi, going to the conservatory, and wherever you go, finding those spots. So I'd say 
let's get this virus away and, and uh, let's travel to some, some interesting places in what formerly was the evil empire. Yeah. Well, I think as journalists, I think we all want to get out there. And Diane, back to you, the, the message uh, through the faces of the people that you've captured, especially in a time of pandemic and people being locked down, what do you want people to take away from those amazing images? Oh, my goodness. You know, the most important thing, I think, is for people to respect each other, that every face has a story and, you know, everybody's life is a story and uh, to just respect, respect each other. That's a great message. Alan, I understand in addition to the pandemic, the recent protests against systemic racism and other forms of discrimination, that these are also featured prominently in the exhibit this year, correct? That is correct. Several of the participants feature photos from Black Lives Matter protests, and one participant devoted all of her photos, uh, all four of her photos, from a um, protest against the Postmaster General outside the, the home of the Postmaster General. So uh, protest, yes, was very much of an um, important theme. But back to the pandemic, yes, there were a lot of photos about the pandemic, but kind of a sub-theme through those were connections to family and community. I think the pandemic provided an opportunity for participants to connect with their families and their communities in ways they probably hadn't previously. Now, now that can cut two ways, of course, but a lot of the pandemic photos are very much family and, and community-oriented. That's great. And I know that even though this exhibit had to be posted online, that there are plans for you to exhibit these in the club, I believe, in sort of a, you know, kind of a digital form, correct? When the opportunity presents itself, when the club opens up and people start walking through, we're prepared to uh, take all of the images on um, whatever kind of digital medium we can and transport them into, into the club and have them flashed on huge screens. I guess to answer your question, yes. All right. Well, we look forward to that time. And Alan, thank you again, as always, for helping to shepherd this exhibit from uh, vision to reality. Diane and Ron, thank you for your amazing contributions to the exhibit uh, and for thank coming on, talking to me today. Again, if you want to see this year's NPC photo exhibit, go to tech, T-E-C-H, news, N-E-W-S, lit, L-I-T, dot com, slash NPC, slash photo, E-X 2020. For update one, I'm Adam Cano. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's update the number one podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.